0: Welcome to Star Trek comic book review. Our several year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek comic book review with Donovan and Ken. Episode 81, recorded May 3rd, 2012. Ah, yes. So a little switcheroo on the
1: introductory chores.
0: Everybody listening thought,
1: damn, Ken sounds good today. Oh, my God. He must be... (laughs) practicing exercising his diaphragm or something very nice well no that was donovan that was donovan that's why things sounded just a little different well let's
0: shoot for shorter because we're getting a little long even when we just have two or three books we still go an hour and a half
1: exactly because we do like to hear the sound of our voice hopefully (laughs) someone else does too
0: i sometimes wonder because because i watch things on youtube and if it's more than three minutes and it's
1: not really good i'm out you're clicking off and I'm yep. like, and
0: people listen to us for an hour and a half.
1: Well, this is different. I mean YouTube is video, it's it's meant to be short. Uh, this is a this is a, a podcast with real good meat in it. Right. Yeah, we're very entertaining. Why well, wouldn't say that. Okay.
0: <laughs> Alright, so today we're going to do next generation issues
1: thirty one, thirty two, and thirty three. So we're gonna be doing these three next gen issues. Pretty nice. Kingdom of the Damned, which will wrap up a, uh, the story we began last issue. Uh, Wet Behind the Years, uh, issue number 32. And then we'll be wrapping up with The Way of the Warrior, which I found very entertaining.
0: Right. Uh, and it'll continue into our next Next Generation episode.
1: Exactly. Because it is a multi-parter.
0: I think it's only two-parters, but I wouldn't be surprised if it goes on to three. I can't remember. Cool. Well, you want to just jump straight into it? I say let's do it. All right. Let's do that. So uh, Next Generation, issue number 31, Kingdom of the Damned, came out May 1992. It had the writer of Michael Jan Friedman, penciler Carlos Garzon, inker Pablo Marcos, letterer Bob Panaha, colorist Julianne Freeder, and editor is Robert Greenberger. So, the cover is a very odd cover has sh- several shots of Riker looking towards the reader. Uh, kind of looks like there are several pictures of the same like a mirror image, uh, like a funhouse type mirror image because there's little other pictures of maybe just his eyes or his two eyes and things like that it 's odd, but the strangest part of this cover is that it has these white sheet. Ghostly figures in the back,
1: ghost, ghost.
0: which is an odd choice because the spirits in the book look nothing like these guys. So they look like Casper or something, or worse. Yeah, it looks like Casper or just your bed friend sheet. who puts a bedsheet on their head. <laughs> Anyways, it's an interesting, not the greatest cover ever, uh, and the uh, little blurb on the cover says Riker trapped alone doomed so we'll find out what happens all right as issue 30 ended we know that riker is trapped in the phantom zone forever 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 or so the phantoms keep telling him riker continues to tell himself and the other phantoms around him that he is going to get out of this wormhole type phenomenon and as you recall he's stuck on a space station that got pushed into this uh rift So we flash to the Enterprise, and Picard is meeting with his senior staff to go over options. Worf and LaForge inform the captain that they've launched a probe, but they lost communications with it as soon as it entered the rift. Data volunteers to take a shuttle in, but Picard denies it, since they don't even know if Riker's really alive or not. On the station, Riker makes it to the command deck and has control of the station's sensors and deflector shields. He comes up with an idea to save himself, but he's going to need the ship's help, if only he could get in contact with them. In the engineering room of the Enterprise, Acuna comes up with an idea, and he runs it by LaForge. He suggests that they should send in a shuttle on remote into the rift. Then Riker would be able to pilot the shuttle back out of the rift. LaForge initially likes the idea, but then he says that Riker would have no way to get access to the shuttle, since the space station has no external, um, uh, external doors. He then asks Akuna why he cares, because last issue, he, he seemed like he was ready to write Riker off. Akuna says that he doesn't want to be the one that spoils the party. Back on the station, the phantoms are continuing to try to get Riker to submit to his existence as a spirit. Riker refuses, and then the sensors pick up the probe. Riker uses the shields to slingshot the probe back into out of the rift. On the Enterprise, LaForge picks up the return of the probe. To Dana and LaForge, this is proof that Riker is alive on the station, and they head out to inform the captain. Back in the conference room... Picard and the senior staff are going over their options with this new information. LaForge speculates that they might be able to use the tractor beam and try to pull a part of the station back out of the rift. They will have to hope that the section that they pull out is the part that Riker is actually in. Back on the station, Riker suspects that LaForge will try to pull part of the station. Very convenient that they're thinking the same thing. He is wondering which section they're going to try to target. Will it be the closest to the rift? Will it be the engineering section? No. He suspects that they'll try for the last area that they knew he was in before the station was engulfed. He grabs a spacesuit and heads off to that area. The phantoms are chiding him for this. They, te- they tell him that if he tries this, he will die. And if he dies, then he cannot live the rest of eternity as a spirit, just as they are. He says that he will take his chances, and he dons the suit and heads out. Just as he enters the room, the station is rocked. The Enterprise's tractor beams are straining on the station, and it happens to be the same section that Riker is in. With a tremendous effort, the section finally gives way, and Riker and his part of the space station start heading out of the rift. The Phantoms are pleased with this, and it gives them hope that one day, they too will find a way out. As the section of the station inches closer to the Enterprise... Data reports that the station's hull is buckling as it exits the rift and that no one would be able to survive it. There's a few tense pages as O'Brien attempts to lock on to the commander. Just as the section of the station implodes, O'Brien reports that he was able to retrieve Rikers safely. Sometime later, the Enterprise has returned to Akona's ship, the Erstwhile. Akona is on the transporter pad ready to beam to his own ship. There are farewells all around, including a kiss to Troy's hand. Akuna does make a final request, and that is to have a few moments alone with Riker. The two step aside, and Akuna tells Riker how jealous he is of the commander. To have friends like these that would never give up on his rescue. With that, he hops onto the pad and tells everybody, Until next time, and he is teleported away. Troy asks Riker what his parting words were. Riker says that he will tell them
1: all over a round of drinks in Ten Forward. The end. Well, Riker got out of it. I knew he was going to get out of it, but I wasn't 100% sure how he was going to get out of it.
0: I was really hoping
1: that he wouldn't get out of it. (laughs) What, are you sick of the character?
0: Well, I was hoping he wouldn't get out of it, and then they would go find Thomas, and then Thomas would be able to be Riker for the the rest of the series.
1: referring to his transporter-created clone. Just kidding. I knew he was going to make it, too. Of course. Come on. Yeah. What what piece of technology, what piece of something would they use? (laughs) Tractor beam. Tractor beam.
0: Yeah. So so knowing that he's obviously going to make it, would you... When they have those few pages of, you know, O'Brien, I can't get a lock on him, he's about to die, does that have any suspense to you? Or are you just like, okay... This is all just filler because I know he's going to make it.
1: Um, Somewhere in between, but mostly towards the I know he's going to make it.
0: Right. I, I like the whole up to how are they going to do it, and yeah. if they're trying to do it and what they're originally trying to do fails, and then they have to come up with a brilliant last-minute move. I like that because that actually has you know more story to it than mm-hmm. two pages worth of, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it, and then – Oh, he made it. Big surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I know he's going to make it, but I like how they come up with the idea of how they're going to do it. Right. But the actual execution, it never really <laughs> – it doesn't do it for me anymore.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, and at least they're a little more realistic because Riker is on the other side of the rift in another dimension or whatever the heck it's supposed to be. And you can't see him. Right. That's a lot more makes a lot more sense than having William Shatner there in the silver spacesuit or gold, whatever the color it was, with his you know kind of like his hands in the air, floating or something, you know, you know, the little phantom thing, you know, for most of the episode, and then you finally get him back. Yeah, that was a good episode. Oh, that's oh god. It wasn't. It was. I mean, I've seen worse, but. Uh, yeah. This was better. At least it it seemed a little more plausible. Yeah, the only only beef I had was that, you know,
0: all he did was send the probe back, and yet both sides came up with the same idea.
1: Well, yeah, and let's talk about that probe, shall we? Okay. Sure. So you called it slingshotting. Did they call it slingshotting? They did not. They just said he repulsed it back. Right, okay. And so... You know that's fine. I'm going along with it. I I love this kind of stuff, so I'll I'll forgive things that really don't seem to make much sense from a physics standpoint. But you got this 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 probe coming, and I got to think those probes are probably not slow. I mean, if you're going to probe anything, you got to have a little bit of speed behind you, or at least have the ability to go fast. Mm -hmm. Um, but so this thing was able to come right at the station. And bounce off the shields and head back out the way it came. So wouldn't you think it would have to be... I mean, I know he was said he was going to do something with the shields or something. You know, whatever the heck that means. Um, but if it's going to like bounce back, like jump on a trampoline or something, wouldn't it pretty much have to come in, and I, th- I think I'm using the right terminology, like perpendicular to the shields? So that when it hit it, it was able to bounce pretty much back the way it came and if it hit it you know perpendicular like that all that force is going to go right on the shields and right against the probe and even though the probe had shields i guess still it just something going that fast stopping almost immediately unless the shields are like made out of rubber or something I, yeah I, I just think the probe would, the probe would disintegrate yeah,
0: I agree. And and that's why I use the word slingshot, because if you look at the picture, it kind of looks like it glances off and then kind of like goes around the station and then comes back out. So I, I was thinking maybe he did something with the shields to maybe, you know, catch rabbit? it, not I really grab it, but kind of guide it around the station and then let it go back out. You know, it's 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 ambiguous it doesn't it, actually say that's what he's doing yeah, but it, it's the, it was did, the only thing i could come up with that made sense
1: if he did it with tractor beams that would make more sense that he grabbed it pulled it around into a little bit of an orbit and then then slingshotted it out again but right.
0: and i didn't mention it in the synopsis but you know there's a lot of dialogue between laforge and other people about how the shields and the tractor beams are made are pretty much the same technology. thing Yep. Except one uses photons and one uses uh, <laughs> gravitons. Uh, well, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I was just like, okay, if they're supposed, if they're, if they're stressing that it's the same technology, then okay, maybe it can do the same thing. Although we've never seen it guide anything before. Yeah. Just, so maybe that's what it does. Like uh, when you hit a little asteroid or something, meteor. Maybe it just. Guides it around the ship instead of just disintegrating. It.
1: I don't know. It's a deflector shield. It bounces it off. You just See? bounce. That's Get what... away from me. Get away from me.
0: It deflected the probe right back.
1: Well, but, okay, <laughs> deflecting would give you an idea that it's, you know, it it's been glanced off at an angle. Not, you know, bounced, you know, exactly back the way it came. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Whatever. And by the way, the probe part of it looks like a nose trimmer I own. From Panasonic. Oh, okay. uh, let me look at it again. Page ten, I believe. Oh yeah, it has the little notches. Yeah, so the that. notches at the top. Exactly. So it's kinda like a, a little cylindrical type thing. I assume that's where the exhaust for the for propulsion system, I guess. No,
0: actually that's that's the that's the nose of it, so how do you know that? Because it's coming in, and that's the first thing that hits the hits the station.
1: No, you're right. Because of the way it's showing, so so that round orb at the other end is the propulsion, right? Hmm. And then the nose hair pretty, trimmer is the odd. nose. Yes. Anyway, I've seen better designs, but uh, yes, I mean the the the, the, the nose uh, with a big old opening in, in the front of it. It looks just like my hair trimmer. That is hilarious. Well, you you've seen that before. Uh, I, think, I, I think I think the whole thing got inspiration from a from a, a nose hair trimmer.
0: I, you mentioning it, I, I totally see it now, but I did not see it before. <laughs> you're, you're right. That's funny. So you mentioned uh, what episode was that? The the Corbinite maneuver or Corbomite maneuver? What about it? Is that the one where he's a phantom?
1: No, no. Was it? Wasn't that?
0: Uh, oh, the Tholian web. Tholian web. You're right. You're yeah, right. I think Tholian web. So you mentioned the space suit there, did you? I was thinking that this costume that uh, Riker dons is... is, It looks uh, like a hazmat suit. Which kind of looks like like the Taz suit they wore, especially in the Naked Now or Naked Time, Naked Space. Oh. Remember it was? Yeah. Remember it was like that mesh faceplate, and it was just kind of like a a silky-looking costume that they were wearing?
1: yeah yeah i guess but th- but this thing reminds you of a hazmat suit. It's yellow uh or yeah kind of a yeah like a well it's yellow it, it's not a perfect yellow, it's not mustard yellow, but it's yellow and um it can be a little goldy but i it, mean it's it's a it's loose and baggy and there's not much form to it. It just looks like a like, like a hazmat suit right so, and it doesn't
0: it doesn't have a face plate or anything, so I was wondering how it would really help him in vacuum. Oh, do you know there isn't a
1: plate? Does well,
0: mean- when you see him getting picked up by O'Brien there on page 22, I mean, there's nothing there on his face.
1: Well, it's clear, but okay. I mean, again, I guess, I guess forward it, to where O'Brien is. I guess
0: it could be really clear. <laughs> it might well, be. Well, you're
1: right. You're right about it looking like there's nothing there.
0: Right. It could
1: be really really clear, non-shiny. But
0: stuff. it's not the big fishbowl helmet that he wore last episode, or no. one of the, one of the episodes. One of the issues we talked about last episode, he had a big fishbowl helmet. Yeah, as his spacesuit. This one is definitely yeah. not that. Right. And I was just getting a, a an original series spacesuit bo- off of it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, kind of, kind of. Yeah, it looks like. Uh, yeah. It looks like, like like a very temporary kind of emergency suit. So I think that's definitely the vibe they wanted to uh, give on it. Right. Which would have made more sense, you know. I mean, how many places around the, the Enterprise do they have uh, vacuum suits sitting around that we've ever seen? Right. Well, he wasn't on the Enterprise, though, was he? No, he's on a space station, <laughs> which is pretty much the same kind of, probably the same similar kind of uh, Structural building techniques and things like that. Though. Right. It's just that when I saw him grab that, I thought, "Oh, that's that kind of cool." That maybe
0: the station's been around since Kirk's time, and oh, yeah, they still have it doesn't the original... look that
1: much like it. Yeah, I mean, me. it, it, this looks like this looks like a like, like a nice, comfy cotton blend. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> where where you know the Kirk one was like metallic and you know shiny. Well,
0: and I, I'm, I guess I'm thinking more of the uh, the naked. What is it? Naked now. Naked time?
1: Whichever think, one it was. I think it's naked time. Right. In, in the original series.
0: Yeah, more of that costume, I guess I was thinking than the yeah. the Tholian Webb costume. Cool.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that more. So man, those ghosts are uh, negative Neds, aren't they? They're just, <laughs> just negative negative. Yeah, and, and what wasn't naked? There... Why are you even trying? Blah blah blah. You're you're an idiot. No oh, geez, take a, take a chill pill.
0: And if it was you, wouldn't you rather die than, than spend the rest of eternity as a ghost? Oh, especially with them. They're just, <laughs> oh, they're just, oh,
1: they're just negative. Ew.
0: That's what I didn't understand their logic when they were like, if you die, you can't
1: spend eternity like us. And then I'm thinking, uh, I think I'd rather die. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what Riker says, I think I'll take my chances. It's like, no chance. Right. I, yeah, forget about it. You I mean, boring.
0: It's kind of like the whole idea of if I get turned to a zombie, do you want to keep going as a zombie or do you want somebody to kill you? Kill me. Exactly. Kill you know, me. If you're not going to have a real life, then why would you want to still be around? Exactly. A yep.
1: Back to Star Trek. Star Trek. So uh, I think the, you already mentioned about the, uh, the cover and the bedsheet ghosts. Mm hmm. I think it's a very nice looking cover, except for the bedsheet ghosts. I mean, why do they do that?
0: Yeah, I kind of like the whole, you know, the mirror, like it's a broken mirror or right. just, like a funhouse type mirror.
1: Right. And, and uh, Riker looks good. The, I mean, yeah. you know, it's good artis- artistry. It's just then, And then they plop these three Casper the Ghost friendly ghosts in there. I just don't, didn't get it. Yeah. And, you know, I kept calling it Phantom Zone and the
0: Phantoms and things like that just because I didn't have any other way to describe this alternate dimension. And obviously Phantom Zone is a star, uh, Superman type thing. Mm-hmm. But doesn't this cover also kind of remind you of when Zod and uh, them are in the pane of glass there? Oh right, Star Trek or Superman Two?
1: Yeah, it's that yeah that so, that two dimensional uh,
0: right and then prison or something. Yeah, and depending like on Smallville, they do it in Smallville too. Where and depending on you know which angle you you look at it, you might see multiple ver- multiple images of whoever's in it. So this kind of reminded me of that. And I just thought it was funny that he's also in a phantom zone. Ooh. But it's just weird that they have bedsheet ghosts, Casper ghosts in the background. Right.
1: So what do you think of the uh, artistry inside of the... I thought it was good. I think it's good, except for a few little spots. Like on page 12, where Picard looks old and skinny. He almost looks like Bootsby. <laughs> when he's standing up,
0: yeah. hunched over. Yeah, I see it. It's like, it hmm, didn't make them look good. Yeah, Just I can see it. that. But overall, I thought that I really liked the artwork in this. I yeah. thought the ships looked good, um, with the exception of the nose trimmer. Now I'll never be able to to look at that probe again.
1: Exactly the nose trimmer probe.
0: <laughs> but uh, and I did think it was funny that in this episode or this issue. The interior of the station actually has form, where last issue, it seemed like almost everything was already ghostly and wavy lines. Remember that?
1: Oh, yeah. I completely remember that. I remember thinking, like, well, why is Riker the only thing that has normal color and seems to be solid? Everything else seems to be ghostly. Right. We're
0: here. It, It makes more sense. Yeah. Now, would eventually the station also turn... Ghostly. Ghostly. I guess. Like he would.
1: Uh, I. I think they said that. Yeah, I thought they at, did too in the first issue. Just that, but, that. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. So where where the ghosts hang out when they're not in a station, in a new station. Oh, look, a new station. Let's hang out there. Yeah, they can just. I guess they
0: just follow the rift as it's moving through. Yeah. Yeah. I don't it know. It's
1: worse and worse every time I think about it.
0: The the only thing about the artwork that I thought was an odd choice was on page seven, mm-hmm. when Akuna is giving his idea. There's this one shot where it's like a picture of Akuna with his arms outstretched, but it's like somebody's looking through. Is I don't know. Is it supposed to be Jordy's point of view where it's he's looking through a visor? It's like a bunch of little oh, yeah. particle That's exactly lines.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be Jordy looking through. But, the thing is, his eyes don't work, so why would he ever see a grate like that?
0: Right, and we've already seen in other episodes where they actually patch into Jordy's optical sensors, and we see how he, he sees everything, and it's all auras and other things where this is, looks just like a normal picture.
1: Exactly. That, that's so, odd.
0: So I didn't quite n- understand what that was
1: supposed to be. Well, that's good. You know, I did not even notice that. That is weird, but uh, definitely I agree. Uh, and I actually, I, I like in, in the TV show when they do give you some snippets of seeing what Jordy sees. Right. Because that really gives you an appreciation where, you know, Jordy's bopping around with the, you know, the cyborg little thing on there, a little X-Men action. It's like, okay, fine, fine, fine. But, you know, you just think of him as like normal. He's like a normal guy. But right. really, he sees the whole world quite different from a human which right. uh was kind of, you know, kind of drove that home to me when I had seen that in that uh episode, I don't know which one, had given you a view of what Jordy sees. I thought it
0: was right and he looks at Data cool. and they there's like, what's that big yellow blob there? And he's like, "Oh, that's Data." Isn't that how you guys see him or something like that? I I've, I I've, that, that is a good episode. I wish you knew which one it was. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so at the end it sounds like Akona's thinking about joining Starfleet.
0: You think so? I, I didn't get that part.
1: Well... Because, I, I, he
0: just wants to have friends. He's, he's a lonely guy on that little <laughs> ship.
1: Could be. He's got to get himself at least a hot robot or something to be on the hot chick robot to be on a uh, ship.
0: Right, so all he has to do is go find Mud, and I'm sure Mud will hook him up ah. with the, a, hot,
1: <laughs> a hot robot chick. Exactly. So what, I'm trying to remember that sci-fi movie with... Uh, Peter Strauss. Peter Strauss was the actor. Uh, but he was in a, uh, a sci-fi movie where he was Space Hunter or something like that. At the beginning of the show, he's trolling around kind of like Okona Kona uh, on a ship. And he's got a hot female, you know, companion there. It's like, okay, fine. It's not all alone. And you find out she's a robot. It's like, oh, oh, oh. What do you mean, oh? Well, she's a robot. I mean, and not even a not even a, like a cool one with a, with a, with something other than a pre-programmed personality like Data, but right. was she fully um, functional?
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I have no idea. They didn't go into that.
0: Well, I'm just wondering, you know, what her her purpose was—if she was really a companion or if she was more of a—I I think she actually an did. assistant.
1: I think she did things around the ship too. Gotcha. Okay. It's been a while since I've seen that movie anyway, and that's really all I have to say about this particular issue.
0: My only thing was that now that they know they can get out, and then you have the phantoms saying, oh, someday maybe we can get out too. Oh, God. You think that yes. Riker would have at least
1: tried? And so that just like, like him? see you later. Yeah, see you later, guys. And, and you know, they go from negative Nellies, oh, you'll never get out. So they, see, so they finally see Riker get out, where – at least he's got buddies on the other side with tractor beams. I mean, what do you got? And, and he's still substantial. I mean, even if they got out of the phantom zone, I mean, what, are they going to pop back into uh, physical form and then freeze in space? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, what, what do you expect out of this?
0: Yeah, I don't know. But it just seemed weird. Why even have that? We'll be be- Maybe we can come out someday if, if you're not going to. At least try. Maybe Michael J. Friedman's setting us up for something in the future. You think so? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's usually pretty good about you know bringing in things from you know loose strings from other storylines. So, right. It's possible. Let's keep watching. Maybe, maybe, maybe it'll happen. Maybe, it well,
1: maybe. I I personally I don't like those guys. So if I don't see him again, I'm fine with it.
0: Well, maybe they come back and they're like villains, like. Like Zod oh, was when he Zod. came out.
1: They could be Zod villains, exactly. Exactly, the
0: Phantom Zone villains, Star Trek style.
1: And by the way, that uh, movie I was referring to was Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Sounds... And Michael Ironside was a very good bad guy, yet again.
0: He plays a good bad guy.
1: He makes a darn good bad guy. Okay. Alright, you ready? I'm ready. Let's... So, going on to issue number 32? Yes. Excellent. This one's entitled Wet Behind the Years, published date June 1992, I bl- almost all the same people. Uh, Michael Jan Friedman, writer, penciler, Peter Krauss, that's different from the last issue. Uh, letters, Bob Pinaja, inker, Pablo Marcos, colorist, Juliana Farida, and the editor is Kim Yale. The upper half of the cover shows headshots of Geordie Picard, Ensign Rowe, and a cute, short-haired brunette Starfleet member. The lower half of the cover shows the USS Tubman's upper saucer section being blasted by a smaller alien spacecraft that is purple and gold colored and almost bat shaped. Although smaller, the ship looks formidable with six directed energy beams coming from it and hitting the Tubman simultaneously. In ten forward, Geordie is having a drink with a lovely young female engineer named Sonia Gomez. She has an interesting gray-green skin color. uh, Very odd. People with that kind of skin color pop up every once in a while uh, in the DC Universe for Star Trek. Geordi is telling her how proud he is of her hard work and improvement and not only her technical abilities, but also her social poise. She says she feels more confident and will not go spilling her drinks again on her commanding officer, like apparently she's done in the past. As Geordie is telling her, the captain has probably forgot all about that, Sonia. She moves to her right to get a refill on her drink and bumps into Captain Picard, who is walking up to say hello. What is left of her drink goes on to Picard's uniform again. Sonia is mortified and tongue-tied. The captain graciously states the tunic needed cleaning anyway and turns around, saying he wants to see Geordi in his ready room in five minutes. As the captain exits, Sonia is crying and deriding herself for her thoughtless clumsiness. Geordi tells her that could have happened to anyone, but despite that, she runs through the ten forward exit in tears. Later in Parkard's ready room... He tells Geordi of an academy training mission the Enterprise will be aiding with. They ask for two engineers to act as onboard advisors to be on the old Constitution-class ship to be used for the exercise. Picard thought immediately of Geordi due to his patience with new people. Immediately, Geordi says he wants Sonia Gomez to be his number two person on the advisory assignment. Picard grimaces and asks if Jordi is sure about that. He says absolutely, because Gomez is one of his most capable young engineers, and she just lacks a little confidence. Working with the cadets will underscore to her how far she has come. Picard begrudgingly agrees to his choice. Later on the transporter pad, Sonia questions Jordi's choice as the captain did. Jordy says she is the best choice due to the combination of her technical expertise and her gentle touch, which will help when dealing with the young cadets. They beam over to the training ship and are greeted by Proctor Keen, who briefs them on the exercise. The objective is for the cadets to get the ship's impulse engines working and by flying her through an asteroid belt to a prearranged set of coordinates. To make things more interesting, the training ship's life support system is on battery backup power, which will also need to be repaired. The card hails from the Enterprise and interrupts the Proctor's exercise briefing. He wishes them luck and says he and the Enterprise will see them on their return from Gamayalsis. Goodbyes are exchanged. The Proctor explains an Academy ship is waiting in the wings in case it is needed. This goes along swimmingly at first, with the cadets getting the old tubman moving faster than Geordi expected. Geordi is also impressed by the job Specialist Gomez is doing. Suddenly, one of the cadets calls Sonia over to look at something with alarm in his voice. An installation dead ahead, not Federation, more primitive, Geordi assesses due to its power signatures. The ship is rocked by an attacking ship originating from the installation. The Proctor's ship intervenes to draw the attack away from the Cadet's ship. A cadet named McGiver identifies the ship as being Qatar design. The Qatar are a race hostile to the Federation. Sonya surmises that the installation in Federation territory must be a secret one the Qatar intend to keep secret. The ship is hit again, and LaForge is thrown against a bulkhead which knocks him unconscious. A cadet says their shields are down to 10%. Another shot like the last one, and they'll be finished. Sonia freaks out, asking Jordy to wake up. The bridge is fe- feverishly asking the unconscious LaForge for orders that will never come. The cadets in engineering are asking Sonia for orders, since she is the only remaining conscious or- officer aboard. Sonya thinks about how Jordi said she was the best person for this assignment, despite her misgivings. She comes out of her reverie determined to do her best. She tells the cadet, who is acting captain, to settle down. They've got work ahead of them. Sonya reviews the situation. They have no weapons, but the Qatar have no scanning tech to be able to, to detect that. She tells the acting captain to launch two Class 8 probes and point them at the Qatar vessel. Next, she tells Helm to head for the close-by asteroid belt. Since the Class 8 probes share the same space frame as photon torpedoes, the Qatar will likely misinterpret them as incoming weapons fire and take evasive maneuvers. Hopefully that will give the Tubman enough time to get to the asteroid belt. Once in the asteroid belt, Sonia tells Helm to keep engine use to a minimum to give the Qatar a minimal ion trail to follow. Sonia enters the bridge and takes the con. After an hour has gone by with no sign of the Qatar ship, some of the cadets think they lost them, but Sonia is not so sure. A message from SickBay says LaForge has regained consciousness but is still not thinking straight. Sonia says to keep him there until his head clears. An overexcitable cadet screams, They found us! And they are blasting away asteroids to get at us. Sonia starts to form a plan by ordering Cadet Timmons to find a frequency that can get past the Qatar shields. He finds it quickly, given the Qatar's primitive shield technology. Meanwhile, on the, on the Qatar ship, We see they are green-skinned and very alien-looking with three fingers. They have blobs of green flesh for eyebrows and other spots where you'd normally see facial hair. The captain's beard of green blobby skin almost looks like melting green wax. The first mate tells the captain, the victory is near! The captain says it will be all the more satisfying given the chase the Federation ship led them on. As they are ready to attack, the captain is told their engines are jammed with debris in the power conduits. They don't know how, to, how it got there. The captain says, remove it immediately. In this asteroid field, they are in danger without engines. Just then, the Tubman hails them. The captain decides to stall the Federation vessel with talk while they get their engines working. Sonya's smiling face comes over the Qatar view screen, asking them if they found the surprise they left in the Qatar engines. Surprised and angry, the Qatar commander demands to know how they disabled his engines. Sonia explains that they used the hole they poked in the Qatar shields to get their transporter beam through and deposit rubble from the blasted asteroids into their engine intakes. Now that they have been chatting for a while, the Tubman is now out of weapons' range, and the Qatar cannot follow them. Just then, they receive word for the enterprise. Picard's face replaces the hapless Qatar captain. Sonia explains the Proctor's vessel was disabled, and now the Qatar vessel is disabled in the asteroid field. Later, Picard's log explains two additional Federation ships are attending to the Qatar installation in Federation space, while the Enterprise attends to the Proctor ship and crew. In Picard's office, he is speaking to Technician Gomez and Geordi. He congratulates Sonia on a job well done, and says any misgivings he had with Geordi's selection of her for the training mission has been completely dispelled by her heroic actions. They leave Picard's office and head down to engineering. When they enter, Sonia says she wants all this fawning congratulation stuff to end. It's just not her style to be treated differently from everyone else. Geordie says okay, but after what she pulled off in the asteroid field, that is going to be difficult. As she moves towards the main control panel, an ensign turns and accidentally spills his coffee on her uniform. He is mortified. But she just says, don't give it a second thought, Ensign. It could have happened to anyone. Wah, 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 wah.
0: The end. So you acted like you didn't know who Sonia Gomez was. Because uh, I don't. She was in uh, a couple of the episodes of the original series, uh, Next Generation. Cool. And in one, she uh, spills her drink.
1: Does she have green, gray skin there?
0: Uh, no, she's she's Hispanic, or as you'd expect from her name. Last right.
1: Time.
0: So yeah, I don't understand why she's colored so differently in the comic. Uh, on the cover, she actually looks like the actress who who
1: plays her in the show. Yet another example of where the cover is totally different from the uh, from the inside of the book.
0: Right, because she doesn't look at all like the actress in inside the book. Exactly.
1: I mean, she's cute. Uh, I mean, she's constantly smiling, big bright smile. But right, it's like she she she, she not the Hairstyle doesn't look like her uh, the person on the cover. Nothing. Right in the show, I think she was in two or three episodes. I can't remember.
0: Mm. Uh, she was played by a woman named Licia Naff, mm-hmm. which uh, I I've seen her in a lot of other stuff. She was in The Flash, the TV show with uh, John Wesley Shipp. Uh, so I, I recognized her when she came on Star Trek, uh, or the other way around, whichever one I saw first. But, uh, but anyway, she also was in, uh, Total Recall and oh. you might re- remember her. The most famous female role in that movie. Uh, the most famous. Yeah. When you think of Total Recall, what's the first thing you think of? Uh, other than
1: Guatu or whatever.
0: Right. Um, I think of uh, Stone
1: the, at the beginning. No, you don't. You think of the
0: three boob chick, and she was the three boob chick.
1: Oh wow! <laughs> Why, uh, uh,
0: you don't uh, remember when he goes to the bar and the? Oh the, no, I the, remember
1: the three. I remember the three boob chick. Yeah, well, the the thing is, I wasn't looking at her face.
0: <laughs> well, that was so uh, uh, that was Gomez right there. It.
1: I would not have recognized. <laughs> i would I would not have gotten that,
0: oh, but if Sonia Gomez showed up on here with three boobs, you would have you oh, oh, that's the girlfriend total recall
1: exactly <laughs> at the very least, how many times do you see three boobs oh, that's funny, so yeah, I always thought it was funny that
0: she plays these sweet, innocent little characters, and you know she was in quite a few t v shows in the in the late eighties, early nineties, and she always played the quirky character. So it was always funny that she also played the uh, the, the three boob prostitute in Total Recall. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's just, a way to put it. Just to show her range as an actress.
1: Do you think they'll have a uh, a three boobed uh, character in the new Total Recall?
0: I, I don't know. Alan Is Farrell. I've wondered if they were going to bring that in because you know I've read the book. Um, and she's not in there,
1: because <laughs> <laughs> uh, they would have mentioned her main characteristic. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to follow the book
0: more than they did in the in the previous movie or or what. Huh. But anyways.
1: So so Licia Naff is that her name?
0: Yeah, Licia Naff.
1: Okay. Okay. I'm looking at her. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, you pulled her up on. Memory Alpha or something? I did. She's also in Chopper Chicks. Oh, okay. Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town. Now that sounds good. That
0: sounds like one I'll have to put on Netflix. (laughs) Uh, No, what's funny is that that character, uh, Sonia Gomez, has been in a lot of the expanded universe stuff. She she becomes uh, head of Starfleet Engineering at one time, Um, and then before Miles O'Brien takes over. So, hmm. she—that uh, character has legs. It, it, she continues on in the expanded universe, even though she was only in what two or three episodes.
1: Right. Cool. Cool.
0: This may be her only comic book con- uh, appearance that uh, that I can remember.
1: Oh, well, you would know.
0: Well, I—I don't. My memory is not always flawless when it comes to this stuff.
1: Yeah, kind of a bad player. So. The Sonya in the book reminded me a bit of B'lana Taurus. You know, not too tall, cute, dark haired, um, engineer. You know. Right. I just, yeah. I just, I just, I just got a B'lana Taurus feel from her. Yeah, I can see that.
0: Book. Well, and she's this odd color, so you don't know if ah, she's an alien. That too, I think that's
1: part of it too. That's right. probably is. Yeah, I totally I'm get glad it. You mentioned it.
0: Yeah, it just uh, you know her being un, you know, so unconfident. That's not B'lana Taurus to me. No,
1: that that part isn't. But she got pretty damn confident in, you know, in the second half of the book when she yeah. was dealing with the menace. She's it, even a little cocky. Right. I like that. Yeah. I like
0: and, that. And her way of getting out of it I thought was actually a pretty cool idea. Beaming um, pebbles into your right. opponent's warp drive.
1: Well, something that works even better is in uh, <laughs> Stargate Atlantis, uh, they would beam uh, nuclear bombs over.
0: Well, you don't even need to do that. Just beam over some tribbles. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: these enemies were not, uh, were not Klingon.
0: Well, as soon as you introduce beaming and, and use that as a weapon, I mean,
1: it's... Oh, there's all kinds of possibilities. Right. Like, like what what was that one... Uh, I forgot exactly which issue it was, where they go ahead and an incoming torpedoes come at them or something, and they and they transport it on its way in, and then transport it back on its way out or something.
0: Right, behind behind it, the ship. Behind so the that... ship,
1: and it hits the other ship, or whatever it did. I mean, yep. the main point is, they use a transporter uh, to, to get around getting hit by, uh, by a missile. So that that's something.
0: Yeah, you think they would do that more often?
1: Yes, because that's a good idea. Yeah, I look... like this one. This one's a good idea, too. But...
0: Right. Well, fortunately, in this scenario, the, their technology was so low that that yeah, they were able to easily beam through their shields. Right. But if you were fighting the Romulans or the Klingons, who's somebody no. who's on par with you, you wouldn't
1: be able to do that. Exactly. Right. I thought it was odd how uh, at the beginning of the book they referred to the training vessel to be a constitution-class vessel.
0: Yeah, and, and that was my comment too, that they were yeah. they really hammering it in. It's the same ship. Same class ship as the original Enterprise. Exactly, and it isn't. No, it's a stargazer type ship.
1: Yeah, and not even exactly a star. I mean, it's a it's a stargazer type ship, right. but the nacelles are a little different. The orientation of them, I should say.
0: Right, but it looks nothing like a Constitution no. class. Ship. not even so, a, a, a modified
1: version. Exactly. So there's something where the script is out of sync with what was done uh, by the artists. And I'm
0: wondering, you know, this is Kim Yale's first Next Generation book. I mean, she took over from Robert Greenberger in this issue. Yeah. I'm kind of wondering if that kind of fell through the cracks with him leaving and her taking over that it kind of – you know, They missed it because there's, there's quite a few weird things in this in this issue that, that I'm like, somebody should have caught that before. Like they, what else? Uh, the other one was uh, when the, the proctor is beaming away from the ship. It just has a, a word bubble going to nothing there on page oh. eight. So I'm like, is that supposed to be that she's already beamed away but her voice still carries? I mean, <laughs> I don't I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, so at the bottom of page eight it just has a word balloon that says, Have fun, Commander LaForge, Miss Gomez. Yep. And, and then then
1: the, and then the pad is completely empty. Absolutely empty. I mean there isn't even an outline of her. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so I'm like, oh that's that's odd. Somebody yeah, should have caught that. Odd.
0: And then yeah the whole the Tudman being a, a stargazer type ship. Uh, I guess those were the two big ones that I that I saw when I was re- Oh and well Gomez's coloring. Yeah,
1: which I so so she's got the same color as Tomlinson.
0: Right, right. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, maybe she's
1: a, a a Klingon in disguise. Maybe we didn't know that. Maybe that is just a clever ruse where she acts to be uh A klutz, but in actuality, a Klingon spy.
0: Right, maybe. Anyways, my actual last comment on this book, uh, and is the uh, the aliens. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of their outfits. They have like metal boots, and you know the classic Superman. Uh-huh. Unitard type thing on the top and their their briefs, and then they have bare legs. It's uh-huh. it's a silly outfit.
1: Well, I think they look pretty silly too. Their faces, their faces, their faces. didn't bother me that much. Well, uh, they look silly. Now I must say that the the teeth help because the, cause they've got really nasty teeth and they got really bad gums. <laughs> Well, at least on page 19 they do. Right. And uh, so that helps. But they just look like these blobby guys. I don't know.
0: I kind of like the little fleshy tendrils coming off their, ch- their, their chins instead of whiskers. Kind of like a Farscape. Like Dargo. From... Ker-Dargo? Yeah. He had those like tendrils instead of a, well, a yeah. mustache.
1: Yeah, but that was like, that was like tentacles.
0: Yeah. This good. is
1: like, you know, Elephant Man or I don't know, like <laughs> a candle. I, it's just I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it, it's is, okay. Uh, it's all it's all good. But I'm just saying. Okay. Not We're good. gonna disagree on that one. We're gonna agree to disagree.
0: Unless you, and then it, uh, if you start saying you like their costumes, though, we will well, have to actually, fight about kinda that
1: Actually, I kind of like one. those high, though, those those knee high boots. They look pretty cl- classy. <laughs> classy or clunky. <laughs> <laughs> knee knee high metallic boots. Yeah. Can you just imagine them walking down the, down the hallway? Yeah, especially if they're in battle, being quiet, sneaking up on an enemy, <laughs> <laughs> the whole way, every step. Right. Um, I thought uh, Sonya smiled an awful lot. She was cute. That was her cute, cutest feature. But, you know, she's just like just smiling. Hi, I, hey, hey. I'm a stewardess when I'm not here uh, on the Enterprise. It's like I don't know. She just smiles a lot. That's part of her quirky charm. (laughs) Yeah, I I like it. I guess. I thought in the end, when the Ensign spills the coffee on her, for the light little moment at the end, I just thought that that was way too predictable. (laughs) I mean... It was kind of funny. You think it was funny? Oh boy, we got a lot of points to disagree on on this one. Uh,
0: think, I'm not arguing with you on that one because I see what you're saying,
1: but it it was just a cute little moment to end the yeah. comic. It was like it was like Friedman just wrote it in. I mean he just he just you know, he went to see a movie or something and just here you go. It's on a napkin. Just you know. It just came to me. It's like, oh that that's so predictable. I mean, God. Anyway, it's fine, whatever. Okay. And I think that's all I have to say.
0: I actually have one other comment. Uh, and unless you've been listening to us all along, you're probably not going to catch this. But they're on page ten when they first come across the um, the refinery or this this fortress that's stuck on this asteroid or whatever. Mm-hmm. Didn't that look like the gold key medieval castle? That no, it was the Marvel issue number four or five uh, of the um, like the. We were calling it the post-motion picture era. They came across this big medieval castle floating in space and come to find out it was just an illusion. But it it looked like that with the ship coming up to it. You remember?
1: Yeah, kind of, I guess. Now, now is, is so that's the one with the um, Dracula and all these things from right. the subconscious? Yep, right. Oh, God, that was a marvel. Oof.
0: Yeah, that was a Marvel. It was issue number four or five. Oh, Actually I think it was a two parter, so it was probably both. Yeah. Okay. Where where they captured that guy who was a film buff and uh it was his subconscious that was creating all the monsters from horror movies past.
1: That explains it. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh all right. you know, if you want to have a secret installation, you should probably build it in the meteor. Not having Towering. skyscrapers that are about oh, at least twice as tall as the meteor is thick. <laughs> True. Plus, all these ships hanging around, and something that was a little bit confusing to me is, you know, when are they in the meteor belts and when are they not in the meteor belt or an asteroid belt, whatever. Um, but, you know, these ships are hanging out in the middle of an asteroid field. It's like, you know, I think... I had seen Empire Strikes Back and <laughs> it's dangerous in there. Right. You got to watch out where you're going. And they got a, a st- uh, an installation that doesn't look like it has a scratch on it. And the ships are hanging around, you know, hey, no problem. I haven't got I'm not getting impacted by any any of these stray asteroids. I don't know. It's called shields, dude. Well, okay, but I think it's called The writer, uh, Friedman, just said, okay, they're in an asteroid field, but yeah, they're asteroids, fine. But they're not going to have any impact, literally, on this story. Right. I just thought that was a lot. I agree. It was weird.
0: Mm. And, I mean, it's it's obviously – I mean, Federation ships go through this asteroid belt, so it's not like they
1: were hiding all that well. Yeah, that's the other thing. So this obviously is not a – a normal training exercise location. I kind of felt like it was. <laughs> I mean, I know they go deeper into the asteroid belt than they normally do. Yeah. Well, most people don't go into the asteroid belt. You want to stay out of an asteroid belt. But, mm. yeah. Bad choice of location.
0: Right. And they'd obviously been there a while.
1: Right. But how much of a threat can these guys be? I mean, bad sensors primitive shields at least their lasers seem okay but I did think it was funny that
0: she just knew exactly what the the extent of their sensors were and their capabilities
1: right Uh, she the briefing that we heard from that one cadet Uh was pretty brief (laughs) it was pretty brief so unless she went on to give a full briefing that was much longer that we just never saw in the comic I agree Right. All right. Anything else? Nope. All right. Let's jump into The Way of the Warrior. Yes, which which I I like this one.
0: Yes, it's a fun
1: one. The Way of the Warrior.
0: So this is issue number 33. It came out early July of 1992. Everybody's pretty much the same. Penciler is Kenneth Penders. Everybody else is the same from the last issue. So I'm not going to go through the whole thing. So the cover has some... Headshots of, well, not really headshots, but upper body shots of Picard, Riker, a very busty Troy. And they're all wearing full body Klingon costumes and Klingon makeups on their uh, their heads. Uh, behind them stands a frowning Data, and he's wearing normal Starfleet attire. So obviously he's sad he doesn't get to dress up. And behind all of them, we see, like, a gleam of light, and within that light is Q snapping his fingers. And the cover promises that the Enterprise crew in a quagmire. Emphasis on the the Q and quagmire. So, story starts off aboard the Enterprise's transporter room. Picard is donned in his fine dress uniform. Emphasis on the dress part of that uniform. And he's welcoming aboard a delegation of Yisalenti. The Yisalenti are large, red-skinned aliens in skin-tight yellow and green spacesuits. And the leader is wearing a long, green cloak. So, a very colorful garb. The Enterprise is taking these, this delegation to a peace negotiation between their own people and the Makakai. Uh, Being a fierce warrior race, these aliens are very rough uh, when they're speaking to people. uh, Kind of rude. And they make a demand to Picard that he needs to keep his Klingon away from them. Picard agrees, and they storm out, being led by Troy to their quarters. Throughout this very terse exchange, we see an invisible Q watching the events. Picard returns to the bridge and requests to speak to Worf alone in, the, in his ready room. Once alone, Picard thanks Worf for his understanding and allowing his other security officers to deal with their guests. Picard says that he wishes that he had a hundred more crewmen like him. That is when the eavesdropping Q materializes and complains about all the compliments and the Starfleet babble. There is a normal set of Worf, Picard, Q bantering about how dare you come on the ship and what are you going to do about it kind of stuff. Uh, Q then tells Picard that he's just not being himself today. And with that, Picard turns into a Klingon. Q tells Picard that he overheard Picard wanting to have a hundred more crew members like Worf. So he's done him a favor and he's given Picard a thousand we learn that the whole ship has been converted into Klingons. And then we get a glimpse of Picard's fish in the fish tank, and even they are now fierce-looking warrior fish. Picard comes to the bridge, and we learn that Data is the only crewman not affected. Riker tries to attack Q, but Q becomes immaterial, and he passes through. But then he becomes solid again, and Riker's arm is caught within Q's body. And it's obviously really painful to Riker. Q then takes Picard on a Christmas carol-type trip throughout the Enterprise, and we see that Mott the barber is now using some nasty-looking Klingon shears to cut people's hair. Uh, We see that the band is playing Klingon music, uh, and we see several fights throughout the ship, especially there in Ten Forward. We flash back to the bridge, and Q says that he's looking forward to seeing how everybody operates as Klingons, and then he vanishes. In engineering, LaForge has a run-in with a very aggressive Klingon version of Barclay. Barclay was questioning LaForge's command, but he is quickly brought down by LaForge, and LaForge sends Barclay out of the engineering room. In the quarters of Miles, Keiko, and Molly O'Brien, Keiko has just completed making Miles's favorite dish. As she is serving the food and the couple are talking, Q appears, and only little baby Molly can see him. Miles says the food is turning his stomach, and requests some serpent worms instead. Keiko complains about the effort she put into making the meal, and the two seem about to come to blows over this argument. In sickbay, Crusher prepares a crew member for surgery. She refuses to give him anesthesia, claiming that a real warrior does not need it. He agrees with her, and asks her to make it extra painful, so that he can be reminded of just how Klingon he is. She is all too willing to comply. The Ysalinti are in their quarters, and they decide to venture out for some food, and they've heard that Ten Forward is a good place to get it. When they leave the room and in the hallway, they come across Barclay and his new set of lackeys. One of the Ysalinti is about to fight him, but the leader stops him, and Barclay and his crew continue down the hall. Barclay assumes that they did not want to fight him because they know how formidable a warrior he is. Q then pops out of the ceiling and says to himself, This could even be more entertaining than I anticipated. To be continued.
1: Cool. Klingon fish. Love it. Love that, it!
0: That's what did it for you? The Klingon that's fish? what did it for
1: me. <laughs> Just give me Klingon fish all day long. That's great. Yeah. on fish. Klingon fish. Yeah. Klingon fish. That's what you need. Okay, can we talk about that cover for a minute? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, now, just, just go with me here, and I'm going to try to keep this as clean as I can. Uh-huh. Okay, so you got Troy there, who has cleavage like she's never had before, and it's on display in the Klingon outfit, just uh-huh. like uh, Lursa and, what, what are those two sister Klingons? Uh, the Dumas
0: sisters? There you
1: go. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um and so she's got it showing there and it's big. It's unusual for Troy. And she's got a Diktok uh Klingon knife in her hand.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And she's kinda I don't know, doing some. her left hand is is, is like uh holding the blade in an interesting way. And then you'll notice that Riker is like a big smile on his face, and he's got a dick talk also, and it's up there, and it's shiny, and I may be reading more into it, but I think some kind of sexual thing, you know, subliminal kind of thing going on here.
0: I think you're reading too much into it,
1: <laughs> <laughs> But I'm having fun doing it.
0: I see what you're saying.
1: I mean, just take a look at it. Okay, so th- you, you, those of you out there in the audience, all two of you, um, you know, look at the cover if you have access to it. And you'll see what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: yes, I, I see what you're saying. We can move on if you like. I'm just saying. So who did you think that, that Picard looked like on the on the cover there?
1: Well, who do you think? Richard uh, Seward? No. Well, yes, that too. <laughs> uh, I mean, his look is straight out of Star Trek VI. Right. He looks like King. Exactly. And that's great. That's great. Uh, Christopher Plummer, Patrick Stewart, you know, great, great actors. And uh, yes, he's definitely got that look with the little with the little mustache. The little mustache kind of thing coming out the side. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice.
0: And Riker there has long hairstyle, curly. I I like the way his hair is on the cover, but in the book itself, he has really short hair.
1: Oh, does he? Look again. Yeah, look
0: at page thirteen when he fights Q.
1: Oh yeah, that that was not a good idea.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but he lo- he looks really good on the cover. But then in the book, he has that really short hair and it looks odd. Oh yeah,
1: and it's not wavy at all. Uh-oh. It's All kind of straight and yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he does look better on the cover.
0: Yep. And Troy looks really good on the cover.
1: Troy looks great on the cover. Let's see some more of that here.
0: Now, does she look like that in the book? I,
1: I, I I don't. I don't think I ever even saw her. her. I mean, she was off with the uh, delegation, right? Right. Um, Yeah, I don't think she's in the book. No, unfortunately. And by the way, is that Wesley getting a haircut? No. Well, it could be, unless he's not on the ship at this point.
0: Well, he wouldn't be on the ship, or he shouldn't be.
1: Okay. Well, I'm just saying, he looks like a teenage or uh, you know a young man. Yeah. Haircut. Right. She reminds me a little little of Wesley.
0: Right. I I I could see that. I I
1: didn't I don't think it's Wesley though. No. no I guess he would be. He back. should be off
0: in Starfleet.
1: Exactly. What was he? 4 years he was on the show.
0: Right. And he left a couple issues back. There was that one throwaway issue where he came back for some reason, but yeah. Aside from that, I think he's he's gone. Gone.
1: Gone,
0: gone to be part of uh Travel. Omega squad or something.
1: Oh, in this particular time period. Yes. Right. Yeah, right. At the Academy.
0: Right. So, did everybody turn into Klingons except for Data? That that's your understanding, right?
1: That's my understanding. I mean, that's I think that's pretty much what what you said. But... Right.
0: I mean, even Mott, who's a Bo- a Bolian, he's he's obviously a Klingon. Right. But if you look on page 22 when okay. the uh when the aliens come out of their quarters, they're on page uh, twenty-two. Uh, there is an alien standing there in a Starfleet uniform.
1: Obviously oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. One of those aquatic kind of guys with the little uh, breathing apparatus in front of him. Right. What, what are those guys again? That, that buddy of Wesley at the academy?
0: I knew it before you started talking, and now I can't. For the life oh. of me, I can't think of what is what kind of what kind of alien they are. My oh, uh, voice
1: disrupts people like that, yes.
0: But good point. Very good point. Yeah, I thought okay. it was weird, because then, then I was like, oh, oh, all the aliens are still the same, but then I went back and no, it definitely is a Klingon.
1: Yeah. That's a very good point.
0: How so did I, he get I, in there?
1: I guess it was just a mistake. I think it's a mistake. I just wanted to observe how probably... I don't know if Meek is quite the right word, but probably the least Klingon of all the human characters are the ones I think they focus a lot of time on showing how they are now Klingons. So, Geordi, you know, not a wimp, but come on. I mean, he's not very macho. Right. And so they showed him as a Klingon, and <laughs> he's a good Klingon. And and Broccoli? Right. Barkley's perfect. I mean, Meek and... You know, inoffensive and you know, no, no, no. Con- well, some confidence issues. Great right. seeing him as a, uh, <laughs> uh but still a funny Klingon. I thought that was great.
0: Yeah, I yeah. thought it was funny that he suddenly has all these lackeys. Uh, right. Like he ha- he has his own little gang as soon as he becomes a Klingon. Uh, exactly.
1: Yeah, it's good. And then of course, Doctor Crusher. You know, I mean, she's she's a lady. And you don't think of her as being, you know, she's no yar, you know, she's not she's not aggressive or anything. And she's supposed to help people. She's a doctor, right? And there she is <laughs> making it especially painful during surgery. That's great.
0: So you liked all that. I was I was a little put off on some of that. I mean oh were you? Like what what
1: what were you put off on?
0: Well, I didn't quite understand to what extent did he convert them. So it's one thing to make you another species. Yeah. But it's another thing to make you have a different set of morals and I mean, I could understand being more aggressive, more you know, temperamental, things like that, you know, 'cause 'cause that's you know, certain species of animals are more aggressive than other species, so right. that could be in your DNA. But what, what I didn't understand was that suddenly she now wants to cause people pain because it's more honorable and things like that, and that is more of a learned behavior. So I was like, is, is he changing their – you know, is he changing their DNA, which is what I thought he was originally doing, or is oh, he actually okay. changing their, their – how they were raised or I, what their morals are?
1: I dig what you're saying, but you're overthinking. Because this is Q And he's got all these powers And If Q says I'm going to make you a Klingon He doesn't screw around He makes you a Klingon And that doesn't mean just physically And that doesn't mean just Chromosomally It means Everything that goes along with it Right but all the
0: other times that he's Messed with people in the TV show, you know, mentally they were still the same person. You know, yeah, even well, though yeah. they looked like Friar Tuck and Robin Hood, <laughs> they still had all the memories and all the the core beliefs right. of, you know. Yeah. And, and these people
1: remember that they are who they are and have been changed. But, yeah. Well, so the bottom line is what's, what's handy for the storyline?
0: Exactly. So, it's a comical – Take on, you know, switched switched bodies thing. Right. right, I get it. I just like I said, I, I, I wasn't I, I, the biggest I, I, and fan. And I know of that what you're
1: body. saying too, but it's like, can but we I'm do looking, willing so to he, roll made with... them, he made them. He Klingons.
0: And then I'm wondering if, if, if you know, Worf's like, you think all Klingons are like this? This very species of you.
1: We don't exactly. all act like that. Well, true ones do. True Klingons do. The
0: warriors do, but they also have scientists, and they also have doctors, and you don't think the doctor purposely tries to hurt people.
1: How many do- how many Klingon doctors have we seen?
0: Not that many, but there has to be some.
1: Well, I'll agree, and there has to be technicians too, but how many have we seen? <laughs> Not many. Exactly, so it's like, where do they keep these people? We never get to see them. Right. Anyway. That's why you gotta read the Expanded Universe stuff. Oh. <laughs> Okay, I'll get right on that.
0: Yeah, anyways, you're right. I'm overthinking it.
1: (laughs) Well, this is a ridiculous episode. I mean, you know, I mean, this is all Star Trek, and it's all made up and stuff. But, I mean, there are some episodes you can take as being a little bit more plausible. Right. This, it's like, well, that's one of the great things about Q. I mean, he can make truly anything happen. It's just, you know, if you go a little overboard with what he makes happen. It's just... I mean, even suspended disbelief can only go so far. Right. I got you. It's a fun
0: episode. Just go with it. So... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Can I... Can I I tell you what my revelation was when I was reading this and I'm kicking myself for not seeing it before? Oh, please. I, I never realized that Q is... Star Trek The Next Generation's version of Uh, Mr. Mitzel Mitzlpitalik from Superman Comics.
1: Okay, there you go. Mr. Mr. Pickle Pickle, yes. Right. So,
0: you know, he was this little imp guy that would just show up and just screw everything up. And he had godlike powers. He could do whatever he wanted to, you know. Switching people around was, you know. Funny to him. You know, he would make uh somebody a mermaid and make another person a dog, you know, make another person, you know, have superpowers. You know he basically is Q for Superman. Right. And it wasn't until I was reading this issue and he did all this stuff to all the crew members, and I'm like, Oh my god, how did I not see this before? How have I not seen the truth? <laughs> and every episode or every issue that Mr. Mitzelpidlik shows up, Superman's like what are you doing here? You know, and it's just like when Picard was like, what are you doing on my ship? And then, of course, Mr. Mitsipidilic and Q both say, I'm doing whatever the hell I want to. What can you do about it? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have my fun, and then when this issue or the next issue is over, I'll be gone. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I, I'm kicking myself for not seeing that all these years that I've uh, been watching Star Trek, which oh, yeah. I think is funny. That is funny. You always need to have your, you know, crazy episode to kind of blow off some steam. Maybe not take yourself so seriously. And that's what Mr. Mitsubidlik did. Oh. And and Q now.
1: Well, a little uh, comic relief. Right. Although, in some episodes, especially the first one, where we first meet Q, um, he's not a fun guy.
0: He kind of lost his edge, I think, um. Sh- Shortly after the Borg episode. He, he seemed menacing there, and then at, I would say all the episodes after that, he seems almost impish, childlike. Yeah. I never really took him as a big threat, because no. he's like, he's not going to really hurt Picard. No. Picard's his favorite toy.
1: Right. And then, when he shows up on Voyager, trying to get a parenting aid...
0: Well, first, yeah, first he nephew w- or whatever. Well, no, first like, he wants he to have knows. a baby with Janeway, and then he ends up meeting Lady Q, and then they have little baby Q.
1: Oh, okay. So that wasn't a nephew that Janeway was supposed to snap into shape. That was his son. That was his and
0: Lady Q's son. Oh. I think they call him Little Q.
1: Little Q. <laughs> Cute. It's <laughs> Little Q. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. So he's not threatening anymore. Good. Okay. You're right.
0: Yeah. So, anyways. That was my uh, little revelation. I'm good. I'm off cool. my soapbox now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> cool. Well, I've I've said all my um, my comments on this one. I, I enjoyed it. I liked it. But obviously, you have to uh, you know take it for what it is.
0: Sure. And out of the three, um, I liked it a lot. But I think I liked the the middle one better. The Sonia Gomez episode.
1: The Sonia Gomez one.
0: Yeah. yeah. I did like that one.
1: Well, they're very different. I mean, definitely, time. I would agree. So obviously, you're putting issue 31 uh, in the back, and I and I agree with that. Way in the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. They're very different. 32 and 33 are very different issues. Yeah, uh, and they're very good.
0: Both of them are good, and yeah. and I would say they're close to being the same. I just I just like having Sonia Gomez back for a one issue, and uh, I like that story. It was pretty good. And maybe if I recognized her, I would have uh, been more with that, too. She was in – you know, we keep talking about Q. Wasn't she in that episode where they meet the Borg? I might be wrong. Don't I don't know. know. Uh,
1: I, I would have to uh, – Look her up. So look her it, up. I, I, don't, I don't know her. It's fine. All right. We, we done, then? I think we're done uh,
0: with the issue. Yeah, so uh, usually when we do Next Generation, we talk about episodes – and Excellent. so this set of three months is the end of season five. So we have uh, starting with imaginary friend up to times arrow part one. Mm. So uh, imaginary friend, uh, that was the little girl had an imaginary friend. Alien took on that persona and started punishing the adults when they tried to chastise the, uh, the little girl. Um, not a bad episode, not a great one. Yeah. That's killer. Right now, the uh, next one I really like—I uh, don't know about you—but is iBorg, where they meet Hugh for the first time.
1: Exactly, and of course, uh, also one of the earlier Apple products. I—I I liked. I—I uh, <laughs> I, I like this episode. It's just <laughs> I, I think I think you I, and I kind of like the you character. It's just I don't know. Everybody was like, I mean, he was just like a pet or something for him. I was like, I really don't want, oh, I feel really bad about putting the virus in him and sending him back to the collective. And it's like, Yeah. Right. Yeah. Actually, that's the part I like best.
0: The whole idea that they could do it? Uh, they did do it. They didn't do it, though. I
1: thought they did.
0: No, I thought they decided they couldn't do it. Uh, did, but they did send did, him back as, a, as an individual.
1: Oh, okay. And so then, it turned out to be the individuality that you brought back to the Collective that ended up putting them in the situation that uh, that led to seeing Laura again. Right, that Laura was able there to take over
0: this, this little contingent of individual Borgs. Right. Right. Okay. And that was, I forget, uh, Descent Part 1 and 2? Is that the name right.
1: of that episode? Descent was that one. Yep. Yeah, uh, that's a good one too.
0: All right, the next one was The Next Phase, which had Ensign Rowe and LaForge and a Romulan uh, being personally cloaked, which means that they could pass through walls and stuff like that. I like this episode because I like Ensign Roe. Yeah. Uh, again, didn't really make sense that you could walk through a wall, yet the floor is holding you up just fine. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, this Whenever people get out of a phase and stuff – or maybe they're super accelerated, like in the first, uh, in the original Trek, another terrible third season episode. Um, it's just like, come on. Okay, so, so yeah, whatever. <laughs>
0: right. I, I like that episode, the whole them, the, the rest of the crew dealing with who they think are dead. Right. And then Ro realizing that people really did care for her. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed that episode. I just, every time they started walking... I was like, why are you not falling through the floor? Not falling
1: through. the floor. <laughs> That's great.
0: Anyways. All right. The next issue was, uh, it's called the flute episode. Oh, by episode. you.
1: <laughs> by you it is. Uh, it's also actually called the inner light. Yes. Excellent episode. One of the top ones. I liked it. It's not one of my absolute... I wouldn't say it's my top ten. Well, this I'm pretty sure this is one of the three episodes they bothered to remaster. It is. So um, uh, somebody, um, thought, somebody thought enough of it to be uh, one of the three first remastered for Blu-ray uh, releases.
0: Yeah, most people, that is in their top. But for me, I mean, I liked it. Don't get me wrong. thought it was a great episode. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, a human condition type story, but. Right. But they're not humans, but,
1: okay, yes, right.
0: But it's, it's about, you know, it's, it's telling someone's whole life in one episode. It, yes. It, it's very interesting.
1: Yeah. But it's, And I think what made it even more interesting around this, this time period, it, you know, in, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, uh, early 90s. Right. Um, you know, California was going through a drought, pretty substantial one. So the idea that your society, your species would be confronted with the idea that your home is no longer hospitable to your life form and that, you know, basically going to run out of water and everybody dies, you know, at least it made me think when I saw this episode, you know, this is something that could happen. And if it did happen, boy, that sure would suck, you know, here on Earth, that, that is. Right.
0: Yeah, I didn't know all that about the uh, California drought at the time.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know whether that was part of. I don't know whether that influenced the script at all, but it made it a little bit more. I don't know, relatable. Right. Uh, what was happening to that to, to that that planet's people? Well, I mean, it, th- this episode hit a chord
0: for for everybody. It, it seems,
1: especially flute players. Right. Irish flute players. Yes.
0: I, I watched the you know they they auctioned off a whole bunch of Star Trek stuff at Christie's a few years ago, uh-huh. and they had a TV special on it, and uh, that flute was one of the one of the higher things that went. Oh, cool! And it had a it had a uh, an interview with Patrick Stewart. You know, after the fact, after I forgot how much they spent on getting this flute, and Patrick Stewart was kind of laughing. He was like, "Yeah, I kind of thought about getting it." He's like, but uh, he's like, the damn thing doesn't even work, <laughs>
1: <laughs> which I thought was funny. That is kind of funny.
0: And then uh, the other thing that that episode's interesting about is that his son, his fake son in the show, mm-hmm. is actually played by Patrick Stewart's real son. Oh, cool. I forgot his name, something Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> really?
1: Yeah, they have the same.
0: Oh. Weird how that works, right? That's amazing. Uh, but anyways, I thought that was kind of cool that your son is playing your son on on the show without it being Picard's son directly. <laughs> you
1: know what I mean? Right. So maybe it was uh, Daniel Stewart. Is that his name? Yes. Oh, okay. All right.
0: And then the last episode this season, Times Arrow Part 1,
1: which you really like, right? Really like, I don't know if I'd say really like, but yeah, time zero is okay. Yeah. I thought it had a good
0: first episode. The second episode, I thought it, it I don't know. I, I didn't really care for the, how it all, it wrapped up. So, yeah.
1: Well, the beginning was kind of interesting, uh, finding data's head. Right. Severed head. I thought that made it kind of, like, that was a good hook. Right. But yeah, how it finally, um, resolved at the end, not as good.
0: Where they yeah, and then they end up just putting the old data head back onto the younger data body, right. and there's no problems. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, you just kind of buff them off, you know, kind of shake out some of the 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 dirt from the 1800s, and you're good.
0: The head would have been 500 years older than the rest of his body.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: yeah. Well, a that little was,
1: reupholstery work, and you're there. That you was the part go.
0: that I was like, uh, really. Well. But I really like the Guinan-Bricard story, where Bricard meets Guinan for what, to Guinan, is the first time. Right. Yeah, Bricard has this whole history with her. Right. And I thought that was kind of. You know, you always think that they're talking about a, a past romance between Guinan and Bricard, and but. I never thought
1: that. I thought you, we had this conversation before. Not a romance. I, I, always, I didn't know what the relationship was. Okay. I didn't. I never thought it was a romance. Oh, okay. Although I guess it could have been, but. It's just, All right. So I mean, she made a big deal out of it. We've got a relation. Oh, during Best of Both Worlds, right? Part one, or was it part two? Whatever. That they had a history, and we have a relationship that transcends what space and time. I don't know what it was, but she was something like that. And I will let him go. So – but it's like, well, what's that about? Right,
0: which, you know, which so. I always thought was a, an, a, you know, a, an allusion thing. to this, this – no, not a romantic thing, an allusion to this episode. I thought this episode answered what she meant there.
1: Well, okay, I, there's some details of this, uh, of, the, of the multi-parter that I do not remember, but I don't remember them being all that close in this episode. Well, I mean, yeah, they met each other. I think he spends some. I think in
0: between part one and part two, there's there's quite a bit of time that goes by.
1: Yeah.
0: Where they're hanging out in the 1800s with Mark Twain. I don't know. I'll have to go back and rewatch it.
1: Anyways, that that's it for the uh, episodes. Cool. And since you mentioned Mark Twain, Mm -hmm. I just got to put a plug in for a YouTube video that's out there right now. And if anybody's a Planet of the Apes fan and like Mark Twain, if you have those two likes, <laughs> you, you must uh, go ahead and look up uh, Dana Gould's uh, performance of, uh, of Mark Twain uh, a la Hal Holbrook uh, in a Dr. Zeus outfit. It's great
0: and i can just do a search for mark twain dr zeus and i'll probably find it
1: probably uh dana gould would also narrow it down quite a bit i, uh, I did i did a search that was something like dr zeus mark twain and i and i found it all right i'll give it a look give it a look it's it's not that long it's not that long it's funny all right sounds good you folks out there too take a look it's funny <laughs> it's odd it's just so odd and unexpected that's part of what makes it funny anyway
0: and he's in the full
1: orangutan costume? I'm in the full orangutan costume. It's great. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, I'll give it a look. Do, do, do. All right, so when we get back next week, uh, episode 82, we will be covering a graphic novel called Debt of Honor.
1: Debt of Honor. By cool. Chris
0: Claremont. If everything goes right, we will have a guest host... So and, be on the lookout for that
1: and I, and I hope we do because it's a big enough book that I don't want to split it between two people
0: Yeah, it's about 100 pages long Which, which is about what we normally read But it seems longer because it's all one <laughs> Right, And it's in magazine format So it's actually a larger book uh, Page-wise, page the so pages are larger I don't know if that adds more panels, but it just feels like a meatier book than the three that we normally do each week.
1: Right. I guess the question of do they just scale everything up, or is there actually more on a page? I guess
0: you know what. I, I my math was was way off there, so it's about twenty five pages longer than what we normally read. Okay. So, so it should be a long one next week. Saddle. Oh,
1: but, <laughs> buckle up! It's going to be a long one.
0: Well. It'll be be all good. Yeah, it should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. All right, so until then,
1: everybody, take care and talk to you later. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us